Glad to see everybody here for the last in this series where we're talking about uh, getting on God's page in terms of the grand purposes of the church. Now, those of you who fly a lot, you know that Southwest Airlines tries to make the experience fun. And so I brought with me here one of their pre-flight safety lectures. It went like this. Welcome aboard Southwest Flight 490. To operate your seatbelt, insert the metal tab into the buckle and pull tight. It works just like every other seatbelt. And if you don't know how to operate one, you probably shouldn't be out in public unsupervised. In the event of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, oxygen mask will descend from the ceiling. Stop screaming, grab the mask, and pull it over your face. If you have a small child traveling with you, secure your mask before theirs. If you're traveling with more than one small child, decide now which one you love more. <laughs> you know, of course, it would be uh, quite uh, the task, right, to establish which of your children you love more, or maybe it wouldn't. But, um, but you know, if you follow Jesus throughout this series, you realize that he actually calls you to prioritize the things that you love. He calls you to put them in a pecking order. And he unabashedly says some things should be the thing that you love the most and something the second most and so on. And so we net these things out for the grand purposes of our lives. As the church has named them throughout the last 20 centuries, they fall into a list of greats, a list of great purposes. Number one, the greatest commandment, to love God. Number two, the second greatest commandment, to love one another. Jesus called this a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, to love the church, that those who love Jesus love one another. And then the third great, the Great Commission, what the church came to call the Great Commission, where we love the world. We even got a banner up there in their sanctuary, so we'll be reminded of it every single time we walk into this place. These are the grand purposes of the church. Some of you, when you've read that banner before, you wondered at our phrasing of it. Wait a minute, love the world? I thought that's bad. Well, yeah, actually, loving the world is bad if you mean it the way John says it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So yes, then love for the world is a very bad thing. It means that you put the temporary things of the world, like power and privilege and pleasure, you put all those things ahead of God, and it leads to a broken life. It leads to a sinful life, a life of separation between you and God and you and everybody else. So yeah, if you mean love the world that way, that's, that's very bad. But if we mean it the way Jesus says it in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Well, if you mean it in that way, then loving the world is a very good thing. It means that you are imitating God by serving the great need of the people, not the things of the world. So the world then, in this case, is everyone out there who is not a Christian. In the terms of John chapter 3, verse 16, which Jesus lays out for us, everyone in the world is everyone who does not believe in Jesus yet. So what does Jesus assume about those people? I mean, you notice there's like a sort of a poison pill inside of John 3, 16. And everybody says it, and everybody in Christian circles memorize it, but there it is. What does Jesus assume about people who do not love and follow him? Well, he assumes that they are perishing. That's what he assumes. So let's get something out of the way right away. The stakes involved in loving the world are sky high. So we looked at, the, uh, at this allegorically, right, with our alone videos, which weren't they clever? I thought we did, our creative teams did such a great job with that. So we look at that guy inviting the outsider in, and he's experiencing this life, 
uh, out there in the woods this, uh, uh, this new life, and he invites other people in. But when we love the world, we're not just inviting the outsider into our shared communal life. Right? We're not just inviting the outsider in to belong to a fellowship of people who love one another and isn't that cool. It is cool. And in some sense, as people investigate and they check it out and they kick the tires, they can belong to this before they believe. But the end game is that they would believe. That's the way Jesus sets it out there. The end game is that we are inviting people eventually and ultimately to be restored in reconciled relationship with a God who loves them furiously because according to jesus if they do not it is not safe to die i mean that's according to jesus so some of you think that jesus would never talk like that but he does he talks like that almost on every other page he talks about the incredible high stakes in people embracing him you know think about the the metaphors he used for himself i am the door and if you don't go through me you're lost And I am the bread, and if you don't have your fill of me, you're lost. I am the light of the world, and if you don't light your way by me, you remain in darkness. I mean, friend, every other page. This is just the way Jesus saw the world. So um, you think, well, maybe why would God choose to condemn people to perishing like that? I mean, why would God do that? Well, if that's the way you think, you haven't read. You're You're not paying attention. You're misunderstanding. Let's keep reading, shall we? John 3.17, (laughs) we all memorize 3.16, but do we keep reading? John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world. In other words, God has no interest in condemnation, but that the world might be saved through him. That is the end game. God's interest is in saving the world. Keep reading. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, or who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, like pre-condemned. It's like pre-existing condition of the human race. Why? Because, next verse, people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Their choice not God's. That's the way the Bible paints it. That's the way Jesus paints it. Jesus taught us that even though the world has freely rejected him, however, God still seeks to love the world back to himself, to call a people of his very own who will surrender to and embrace a relationship with him. In fact, uh, the, uh, another gospel will confirm this. Here's Jesus talking in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he looked out over the crowds, the Bible says, Jesus, his heart broke. Jesus' heart broke. So confused and aimless they were, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, some of you have a hard time putting this together. I'm just guessing. I don't know if you're in the investigation mode here this morning. You just got a hard time putting love and judgment together. Like, how does that work? But let me just, you know, allow you the permission to freely illustrate from your own life. Some of you, I know, have been in a relationship with someone where you have been willing to forgive every offense and you are also willing to, uh, to go any distance. You have the, the, the pot of pity has been stirred inside of you for this person and you're ready to offer every help and to forgive all, but they will not. Because of their choice, you remain estranged from that person. Yes, there's somebody in this room who knows what I'm talking about. You, if it was, a, it was according to your will, you'd be reconciled already. But someone else has voted. And their vote was to remain estranged. 
because they would not acknowledge the offense, because they would not repent of it, there would be no truth between the two of you, so there could no, be no restoration of relationship. Friend, can it not be like that with God also? That his heart could be simultaneously moved with compassion and yet unable to save a world that refuses to be saved. Could it not be like that? But you might protest and you say, well, look, I mean, if God is love, wouldn't he make a way? Yes, he would make a way. That's our story. That's our story. That's the only story we have to hold out to the world. God has made a way. Sometimes if we really, really, really don't want something to happen, what will we say? We'll say, over my dead body. And so there's a sense in which God has literally said that in the cross where the Son of God hung dying, he says to the human race, the only way you remain in condemned condition is over my dead body. By stepping around it, mocking it, trampling it, avoiding it. Over my dead body. That's the only way. Well, you say, but if God is love, surely this stirs him. Yes, it stirs him on every other page. And Mark will be one of the gospel writers who most keenly attunes us to the heart of Jesus in his expressions, in just what's going on on his face. He'll say, moved with compassion. Having pity on the man. These are the things that Mark will say because God was in human skin constantly moved to pity. What else does it mean? When the Bible says his heart broke, he's filled with compassion for spiritually lost people. Another time he'll look out over a whole city, Jerusalem, and he'll say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who stones the prophets, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you would not. There it is again. God's heart breaking with compassion, calling the world to be reconciled, but the world gets a vote the world gets a vote so the world is lost but in compassion god is calling it back to himself but here's the wild thing okay you go back to that matthew 9 passage what happens next okay so we've seen the stirring of god's pity and we've seen uh, his interest in reconciliation now what happens next matthew chapter 9 verse 37 then he said to his disciples the harvest is abundant but the workers are few therefore pray to the lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest so Jesus' heart is moved with compassion. He's seeing people are lost and aimless and need to be gathered into a reconciled relationship with himself. And what does he do? He commissions his disciples. And he says, you will love the world. You'll be my instruments. You'll be my harvesters in the world. Like the song that was sung for us just a moment ago. You'll be fishers of men. You'll be my ambassadors. You'll be my agents of reconciliation in the world who appeal to the world to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. So today, listen, if you're a disciple, that call falls on you. The call to be a fisher of men falls on you. So do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as a fisher of men? Do you see yourself as a harvester in a world gathering a family back to God? If you do then you're going to do what the early church did, and that is you're going to have a priority commitment in your life to loving the world. And so as we've seen in this model church throughout this series, they not only show us the grand purposes, the greats, right? The greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, the great commission, but they actually show us how to get them done. So let's go back to that description, shall we? Acts chapter 2, 41. They show us how they loved the world. Look at this. 
those who believed what Peter said, first Christian sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, those who believed were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all, enjoying the goodwill of all the people, that, means to, that is to say that that early, that early gathering of Christians had a, a good reputation with outsiders. Outsiders looked in with favor, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So, like the other loves, this one kind of breaks down into two habits or activities that spelled out how they did it. And we've broken these down into a bunch of G's, and this makes the preacher's heart really happy when you can do alliteration, right? So that's what we've got going on here, six G's. We got loving God, growing, and glorifying. We got loving the church, grouping, and giving. And now we've got loving the world with two more G's, going and grace, going and grace. And you see how they got it done. Let's just review. They were in the upper room. They were praying, enjoying their fellowship. They were Jesus people, the only 120 Jesus people on planet Earth. And then they left the upper room, they left the safety of it to relate to a world bringing goodwill and favor with outsiders. Outsiders looked in with favor. And then grace. They explained God's grace for lost people and invited them to respond and the respondents they marked with baptism. So going, grace. So let's break these two G's down. Uh, And I want to use Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan because it's kind of amazing how beautifully that story of the Good Samaritan fits our call to love the world. So first of all, going. It begins with compassion. Look at this. In Luke chapter 10, verse 33, going begins in the heart. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where a man was, the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. So the story up to this point is a man has been beaten on a road and left for dead. Samaritan comes along and has pity on him so the first thing that happens is compassion needs to be stirred if we're going to go the first thing that has to happen is we have to have compassion pity and i'll tell you what gets in the way of compassion number one thing first thing judgment first thing that gets in the way of compassion and pity for outsiders for people who are investigating or seeking or outside uh, the christian faith is judgment And now, interestingly, that could have happened here because it already has happened in the story. Remember in the story? Two people have already passed by this guy who's beaten and left for dead. Two people have already judged and said, can't do that, and moved on. And you wonder, why would they judge someone like that? Well, listen, the road that Jesus describes in this parable is a real road. The story is an invention of Jesus out of his head, but but the road was real, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and it was a notoriously dangerous road. And you can see why if you've been there. I've traveled that road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And now it's a two-lane highway. It's a beautiful two-lane highway. But you can see why it was so dangerous. You're carrying a ton of elevation. You're going from one of the lowest places on earth, the Dead Sea Valley, about 1,300 feet below sea level to Jerusalem, which is about 3,000 feet above sea level in 20 miles. So it's really steep, filled with a bunch of switchback. It was a perfect place for robbers and um, thieves. And so you could have easily judged the guy. You could have said, where was your entourage, man? Where was your weapon? Why were you you traveling alone? This is a bed of your own making. You You could have easily said that about the man. You could have fell into judgment. The Bible says the Samaritan was filled with pity. And so friends, just moving this right up on into the present, some of us, this is the biggest barrier for you just going. What does this mean? Well, you've, you've, you've allowed judgment to cloud the way you look at people 
who don't uh, embrace Jesus the way you do. And so um, that's not the, what the Good Samaritan did. He was moved with pity. And you know, the biggest the way to get over that obstacle is simply to remember that no one is ever called into the church into a moralistic program. So you're not looking at that person and say, well, if you, should just, if you could just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you might be worthy of Jesus and I'd stop judging you. No, you remember that no one comes into the family of God by good works. Nobody. But we only come by grace. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So if you remember that, then it begins to dissipate judgment. But there's another reason we have a hard time having compassion on people. And that is because the unchurched people that you know of, the people in this town who do not embrace and follow Jesus, do not scream out that they need pity. They have nice cars and nice kids and nice spouses and nice jobs and nice vacations and nice homes. Their, their life does not scream, have pity on me. Their life screams out, get away from me, Jesus freak. That's, that's probably more what their life screams to you. Just stay away. So listen, friend, if you could start seeing them the way God sees them, it would begin to help you to get up and go. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16, look, Paul says, look, I, we used to look at people just on the natural, you know, just see them on the surface of things. We don't do that anymore. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And maybe you would begin to stop seeing people from a merely worldly point of view. And what that means is you see them as an eternal soul who matters to God, and without Jesus, he's lost and you start seeing people that way, it will begin to stir the embers of compassion in you. But it also will stir you toward relationship. Let's keep going. In the story of the Good Samaritan, 1033 of Luke, again, kneeling beside the woman, wounded man. Okay, so what happens is the, the, the Samaritan has had pity stirred in his soul, but now he moves. It's not just pity, right? It's not just compassion. He moves to cross the road to get up next to the man and now there's close contact. Now there's relationship. He's actually touching the guy. And so go means that we have to leave a place of comfort. The song talked about this. We have to leave the comfort zone and we have to move into a place of risk. And that's what this guy did. That's what two other people were unwilling to do but that's what the Samaritan did. He was willing to move across the road and get up close. This is interesting, and I find this a statistical oddity, but it's true. Within three years of becoming a Christian, every person who becomes a Christian in, as an adult loses almost every relationship they have with people who are not Christians within three years. That is to say their entire relational world gets revolutionized. They become friends with Christians, and that's their value system, and those are the people they relate to and hang out with. And piece of that's pretty cool, right? Like what we talked about last week, we love one another but that we would, we would lose every relationship with people who are far from God friends is a real problem. That we wouldn't have a single close friendship with an unchurched person. Then we do not have the heart of Jesus, right? Who looked out over the crowds, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So the application here, friends, is you have to be able to name at least two people. Two people who are in investigation mode. They're in seeking mode. They're, they would self-identify as not Christians that you have a growing relationship with. Do you? Two people, at least. And if not, you're not growing. You're not going. You're not going. You don't have to go to Africa to do this, friend. You don't have to go to Africa to go. And friends, sometimes you just have to go across the street. A while back, we got a new neighbor and um, moved in across the street. 
and he was a single guy and we're busy and he looked really busy and so that was all the excuse I needed that for months I just never initiated, never walked across the street, never shook his hand, never got to know him, never introduced myself. I'm busy, he's busy. Then he brought in a, um, uh, a, a, a tenant, a, a roommate, and my mind just prejudicially went towards, well, they're probably lovers and so now they know that I'm a pastor they're just going to hate me you know they, they don't want to get to know me you know because that whole thing just all that prejudice is in my head right I'm just being very confessional with you this morning and so so as I'm thinking this um you know there's a there's a moment uh it was months into uh them moving across the street I see them playing basketball on the street somebody set up a hoop they're playing ball out there and I'm sitting there weirdly looking out the window at these two guys playing basketball across the street and uh, Jonna sees me looking out the window and says, well, hey, you play basketball. <laughs> and uh, I looked at her like, yeah, I, I guess I do. And so I knew, of course, exactly the nudge and uh, my wife, Junior Holy Spirit. Um, and I, I just opened up the door and all oh, the walk across that street. It's a long walk across the street. And I just introduced myself and I started entering into their game of horse and we got to know each other and it was super cool. The beginnings of a relationship. So it turns out they weren't gay. It was this guy who gave a room to his friend who was going through a hard time. They turned out to be sports nuts. And, um, and so I invited him into sports ministry here at AC3. They got to know a bunch of you guys. Uh, they, uh, they started to come to church on Saturday nights and, uh, and before they moved. And it was a, a beautiful amazing open door that would not have happened AC3 if I didn't walk across the street. That's it. Walk across the street. That what it, that's what it means to go. So going, compassion and initiating relationship. But in order to love the world uh, the way Jesus wants us to, we also have to give away grace. I mean, that's the end game. So go back with me again to the story of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, 34 now. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Now I want us to look at this allegorically. The Samaritan, in a sense, gives the man an invitation to a next step to address his mortal wound. Okay? And when you think about, we've been talking about a spiritual wound. Well, here you go. So he's giving the guy an invitation to the next step. So think about it like this. Imagine you've initiated with compassion. You've developed a relationship. You go. But then there comes a time when you invite your friend into a spiritual conversation, into a next step. And you do this in the context of relationship, wherever it happens to be. It's an invitation to come and see something about your life as a Jesus follower that might be alluring um, it's an interesting kind of a come and see kind of moment when, the, when this happens in friendships. Look, there's a, there's a great scene in, in the early parts of John where Philip says to Daniel, come and see, see or says to Nathaniel. Nathaniel is wondering what's been going on with Philip. He's been tying up with a rabbi and what's going on in your life? And, uh, and he says, well, it's Jesus from Nazareth. Nazareth, <laughs> Nathaniel can't believe it. So what, can anything good come from Nazareth? You'd understand that if you understand the context. Nazareth is a podunk little town of very little consequence. Darrington. And um, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Uh, and, and, and so he's, can anything good come from that town? And Philip says, come and see. 
Come and see. See, he doesn't just dump the whole thing on him right there. He's very alluring. He's provocative. Come on. Come and see. There's that moment in relationship where you give out that invitation to come and see. There's an invitation. What kind could you send out? Inviting someone to read a book with you on a spiritual sticking point they might be having. It's like, let's explore this together. Here's what my faith tells me about you know, marriage issues. Here's what my faith tells me about how to handle money. Uh, maybe we could explore that together. Uh, invite someone into a conversation. There's someone who uh, was uh, dealing with a, a friend of theirs, a, a student from Wazoo, a moving towards aggressive atheism. And uh, it, there was a hastily assembled introduction uh, between the two of us, and I just invited the guy into conversation. I said, do you want to talk about this stuff? Like, would you want to talk about your spiritual sticking points? The guy said, yeah. Okay. So we started a texting conversation that is going on to this day. I just invited a guy into a conversation about spiritual things, about worldview, about philosophy, about, about the veracity and truthfulness of the Christian faith. And he wanted to talk about it, imagine that. These long book-length texts flowed now and for months on end. Just invite someone into a conversation. Invite someone to an event like men's events, like the, uh, the Advance or women's event, women's forum, or, or to your small group if that's appropriate, or to our weekend services. Look, friend, you could look at this place a little bit. Like, hey, this is like the inn. You know, a, a tool in your toolkit for loving the world. Now, let me just address some of you who have been coming to ACG for a little bit. You maybe like some things that are going on. Maybe most of your experience with the church is the weekend service. And in the weekend service, you kind of wonder and scratching your head a little bit at the amount of effort, the resource intensiveness with which we put into, which we put into communication. The use of the arts, video and awesome music and drama and dance and the whole thing. And you go, boy, that's pretty resource intensive. Listen, the second you bring someone who's investigation mode, you're going to get it. If you don't get it, if you say, eh, I could take it or leave it. But the second you bring someone who's in investigation mode, they're seeking, and they're just kicking the tires on the Christianity thing, then you'll get it. You'll understand our philosophy of ministry like you never understood it before. You'll come in in the morning, some of you are in that moment right now, and you'll be saying, well, I hope Rick doesn't use big words today. And you'll say, I hope, I, oh, I just, I, I, oh, I hope the drama's gonna, you know, just speak. It's gonna, you know, gonna have them laughing because they're probably not thinking they're ever gonna laugh in a church. And they laugh in a church. And they laugh at themselves or something about them or something about the world and issues that we all share with our unchurched neighbors. And maybe for the first time, Christianity makes sense. You'll get it when you start bringing someone. Some, one of you uh, did this, uh, a lot of you do this, but one of you uh, brought a friend, uh, this was several months ago now, and they came up to me, your friend, your unchurched friend, comes up to me after the service and shakes my hand and introduces himself warmly, it's really cool. And then um, they said to me, and this is basically the husband's exact words, there's a couple that, that I met, and the husband says, I finally understood what's being said in church for the first time. And that's an amazing compliment, because that's what we're trying to do, put the cookies on the lower shelf. To give away grace, friends, we have to invite. We have to invite them into a conversation. We invite them into next steps. We invite them to church. But having done all that, finally, one thing more, and we're not giving away grace unless we're all also ready to introduce. 
So invitation and introduction. Let's look again at the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verse 34. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The Good Samaritan, see, not only takes the guy to the inn, he hands him off to the innkeeper. There's a person there behind the whole show because he knows that he, the Good Samaritan, is unable to meet everything that the wounded man needs. So he must introduce him to someone, capital S, with better resources so that the man's full need might be met. So Ellen Creek, that happens. That handoff happens when we have the, pl- pl- the pleasure of introducing a friend to Jesus Christ himself. Now here's the part in loving the world where you freak out. Right? Here's the part where on the inside you go, oh, I could never... Like, yeah, I get the whole, I could do the compassion thing, Rick. I could, uh, I could even initiate a relationship maybe with an investigator. I could even invite them to church from time to time, but I could never do this. Like, walk someone across the line of faith and introduce them to Jesus. I could never do that. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. Friend, look, Christianity is not hard to understand. A child can explain it. My little girl's already able to explain basic Christianity to me. A child can understand it and explain it, so that's really not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is probably fear. So I just want you to just embrace it right now and just ask yourself, what if that person that you love, that beloved skeptic in your life, came to you at one point, that person that you've invited into next step conversations, that person that you've been praying for for months and months and months, that person came to you and said, friend, you know, we've been talking about a lot of this stuff for a while now, and I just gotta say, I'm just impressed by something different about you in your life, and how could I get in on that? People do say that from time to time. A lot of times when you're talking about spiritual things, they just wanna think about it, but sometimes they just say, how can I, how can I get in on this? It's that bold a request. What would you say? Would you have any idea what to say to them in that moment? You should, you should have an idea. In Extended, I hope you stick around. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about some tools, about some illustrations you could use, just some simple ways you could explain grace. And if you really are struggling with the fear thing, a guy in our church, Sean Schrader, he offers a class from time to time. You could contact the church office. We'll get you plugged in. The class is called Sharing Jesus Without Fear. And you just kind of address this issue of why am I so afraid to talk about the thing that matters the most to me and get over it. Friend, uh, you just can do this with some trial and error. And remember, you say, what if I make a mistake? Listen, you're the junior partner in this. You don't love that person half as much as Jesus does. Not even a quarter. You understand? You're just a junior partner. So you just walk faithfully, offer an invitation, and then your job is kind of done. You understand? And it's really simple. You move into this place, you just say, um, I remember a guy comes to me and it's like, it was like he scheduled the talk. He said, look, I just want you to understand Christianity more. All right, so we met for coffee and we talked. And I'm terrified. I'm just like you. I'm terrified. What am I going to say? I mean, how am I going to frame this or whatever? And I just relax. It's like, you know what? Clearly, God's working on this guy. All I am is just a little link in the chain of a person coming into reconciled relationship with God. That's all I do. I'm just a link in the chain. I'm the under shepherd. I'm not the shepherd. So I could just relax. Told him my story. Use a little illustration to explain Christianity, an illustration we'll walk through and extend it today. And then I asked him the question, do you want to express faith in Jesus? (laughs) 
about as baldly as that. And at that point, friend, you're done. Because what happens next is all on them. And it's one of three things that will come back to you. Yes, I do want to express faith in Jesus. No, I don't. And it's like, all right, cool. I'm glad we got to talk about this. It's really cool. Or I'll have to think about that. And that's the other response. And it's like, all right, awesome. Well, let's think about it together. And maybe we'll come to church and we can talk about what's talked about there and we can just think about it together. There's one of three things, but at that point, you're sort of done. You've been the faithful under-shepherd. You faithfully love the world. And in this particular case, God just comes back with, I said, do you want to express faith in Jesus today? I mean, what would stand in the way of that? He said, nothing. <laughs> so it's like, all right, let's do it. And then we prayed, and I introduced him to Jesus. That's grace, friend. There's the invitation followed by an introduction. So now I just want to land the plane on the whole program. You can, if you want to, look over to uh, your left, my right. Love God, love the church, love the world. What if you and I were more dedicated to those purposes in 2018 than we've ever been ever before? What kind of life will come out of that? I'll tell you, it won't be a safe life. Not entirely, no. It won't be a life without being stretched out of the comfort zone. There'll be risk associated with that, but let me tell you this, friend. I'm calling you into the adventure of it to seize upon it and say, yeah, that might rearrange me, but I could embrace the adventure of it because I was made for that. Let me illustrate that. I mean, there was a couple in our small group. They once told us about a great indie movie called Safety Not Guaranteed. Maybe you saw this movie before. It was actually filmed locally. And it's about some pompous journalists who decide to create a story by following up on a kooky want ad in the paper that read as follows. Wanted, someone to go back in time with me. This is not a joke. You'll get paid after we get back. Must bring your own weapons and get this, safety not guaranteed. I've only done this once before. Okay, great movie. It's one of those great movies that you've never heard of. But did you know there's a true story behind the plot device? Yes, in 1997, a guy named John Silveria sometimes helped Backwoods Magazine fill in their, uh, their magazine uh, with uh, classified uh, with, um, jokes and riddles and other material. Okay, he was a writer. One month, he was lacking some material, so instead of writing jokes, he wrote a joke ad. Two of them, in fact. One was a Lonely Heart ad, and the other is the ad just exactly as you read it in the movie. Safety, not guaranteed. And get this, the personal ad, the, the lonely heart ad, got five responses. The ad to go back in time got 10,000 responses. <laughs> now, what does that say to you? People are insane. No, no, okay, that's not what it says. Because a lot of people said, this is probably a hoax, it's probably, a, a lot of people led the way like that, but you know what, they were just like, just curious enough, they were hungry for adventure. They were promised that their safety was not guaranteed. They were promised Danger. And when they were promised good feels, five people. When they were promised danger, but adventure, 10,000. You were made for the adventure of loving God and loving the church and loving the world. And friends, if you embrace this, strap in. Because there will be risk involved. God will remake you and rearrange you and some things about your life and the way you're handling your money and maybe where you live geographically will change because you got on board God's plan. But friends, would you embrace it? It begins here. Fix your eyes on the one who calls you into the adventurous life of love.
a great charge to us. Now let's bow our heads for a second. And I would like you to respond in your own heart as God has moved in it. And don't leave this place today, friend, without making whatever commitment that God has moved in your heart to make today. Don't just say, well, it was cool, saw a great video, heard a great song. Listen, what is God saying to you? Don't miss the moment. You will respond. And Lord, now for every heart that has been moved by your Holy Spirit, Lord, may you pull out of that life the fruit that you had in mind when you saved that person by your grace. Because that's why you saved us. To walk in all the amazing good works that you had planned in advance for us to do. Now, Lord, we commit to walking the way you've called us to walk. And so, Lord, may we walk this walk of love, but we will only do it sustained by you with our eyes fixed on you. And so, Lord, with our eyes firmly fixed on you, use us in the grand purposes that you have to form a people of your very own, a spotless bride, your church, calling out people from darkness into your marvelous light that we may be connected to you, the Father of our souls, and so be joined to you forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.